Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year, with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. With Pet Sounds, I wanted to write some songs that reflected how I really felt about life. Something that I felt in my soul, rather than just car songs, surf songs, you know. Something more introspective, like taking a good look at yourself and then see what you should do to improve yourself. That was my way of coping with, with those kind of things that come up in every man's life. I tried to make it the most artistic, loving album ever made. And it was one of the best. God only knows what I'd be without you. For Brian Wilson, Pet Sounds was the realization of a revolutionary musical vision, but it was also the work that led to his own emotional unraveling. At a time when he was beginning to show signs of serious mental illness and dealing with tension within the band, which included his two brothers, Dennis and Carl, his cousin Mike Love, and childhood neighbor Al Jardine. The songs on Pet Sounds were personal, in a way rock music had never been before. They were also totally unlike the bright and cheery early hits from the group about life in the California sun, which is one reason the album was met with confusion. It flopped on the charts, and it was dismissed by many as a colossal misfire, even by several members of the Beach Boys. But some people realized its genius right away. The Beatles producer George Martin said Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band never would have happened without Pet Sounds. When Wilson sang Wouldn't It Be Nice If We Were Older on the album's opening song, he wasn't just imagining a love that could evolve past high school. He was suggesting a new, grown-up identity for rock and roll music itself. I'm Brittany Spanos, senior writer for Rolling Stone and your host for Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums the podcast where we dig into 10 albums off our brand new list. In this episode, The Beach Boys' Pet Sounds. As poorly received as the album was when it was released, Pet Sound slowly became one of rock's most celebrated albums. It landed at number two on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums poll. Rolling Stone editor-in-chief Jason Fine grew up in Laguna Beach, California, and the Beach Boys were part of the soundtrack to his childhood. He's covered Brian Wilson for more than 20 years and is the co-writer and co-executive producer on an intimate new documentary film about Brian, Long Promised Road. Here's Jason. 
One night in December 1964, Brian Wilson was on a plane from Los Angeles to Houston when he began to have a panic attack. That's when he decided he wasn't going to tour anymore. He was going to let the boys go out on the road while he stayed home to create new music. It was really sad for us because at that time, nobody had a falsetto like Brian. That's Brian's cousin and Beach Boys singer Mike Love. I mean, you do an In My Room or Surfer Girl, or he just had the greatest tone ever. At this point, the Beach Boys were the most popular band in America, and 22-year-old Brian had been its leader and primary creative force since they first got together as teenagers in Brian's parents' living room. So there was a lot of emotion involved, you know, when he decided to leave the group, but we understood he wasn't happy on the road. He wasn't thriving. He wasn't doing well. And he had a big compulsion to, to write more and arrange more and produce more. The plan worked. Brian crafted increasingly ambitious hits like California Girls and Help Me Rhonda, while the rest of the Beach Boys continued to tour. It was fascinating. We, we were doing so well all over the world. I mean, we had fan letters from Russia, China. We had hit records in Israel, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. But of course, 66 was probably the height of, of our productivity and popularity. The radio hits may have defined the Beach Boys, but hidden on those albums were signs of the more complex personal direction Brian was exploring. Songs like Please Let Me Wonder and She Knows Me Too Well. Leaving behind the surfer girls and souped up cars of the past. These were songs about the hopes and anxieties of growing up and the fragility of Brian's emotional life. And there was another factor at play. A year before he started working on Pet Sounds, Brian took his first LSD trip. He mostly spent that afternoon terrified, hiding in the closet. But a few days later, he came up with one of his breakthrough hits, California Girls. The song geniusly fused a Baroque, almost Bach-like intro with one of the most memorable pop choruses of all time. Brian says the LSD helped open his mind to new ways of writing. He once said, My creativity increased more than I could believe. On the downside, it fucked my brain. Over the next few years, Brian began to suffer from mental illness in deepening, debilitating ways. It wasn't until decades later, after experiencing auditory hallucinations and periods of deep depression, that he was treated for schizoaffective disorder. Brian was also experiencing a new level of freedom. He'd recently fired his father and manager after years of overbearing and abusive behavior. He married his teenage sweetheart, Marilyn Ravel, and they bought a mansion in Beverly Hills, where he installed a sandbox in the living room so he could feel the beach as he wrote songs at the piano, where he and his friends could hang out, eat peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and smoke weed. Two months, he sat at the piano with his toes in the sand, playing what he called feels, riffs, bridges, fragments of themes, with the goal of creating the most soulful rock album ever made. Around that time, the Beatles released their groundbreaking Rubber Soul. In the 2003 short film Pet Stories, Brian told director John Anderson about hearing that album for the first time. The inspiration for Pet Sounds was Rubber Soul. That was the one that got me going. In November of 65, at my house in Beverly Hills, my friend goes, I want you to listen to this album by the Beatles. And I got so blown out that I went to the piano and started writing songs, started making melodies. I wanted to try to top it. I felt competitive with the Beatles. You know, it's a funny thing. It's funny. But I felt competitive with them. A friend then introduced Brian to Tony Asher, a young copywriter who had written jingles for brands like Mattel. The first song he showed Asher was a nostalgic hymn called In My Childhood. 
Asher took the song home with him and rewrote it as You Still Believe in Me, and the two went on to co-write the rest of the album together, including what would become one of the most famous opening songs on an album ever. Brian called Wouldn't It Be Nice the happiest song he ever wrote. The words, the lyrics by Tony were really exceptionally good, you know, on that one. Brian was obsessed with producer Phil Spector. Spector's production of the Ronettes classic, Be My Baby, is Brian's favorite song of all time. He told me once that he still listens to that song every day. He marveled at the producer's wall of sound recording technique. I wanted to take the wall of sound and do my own thing with it and try a new wall of sound. So Brian hired many of the same musicians from those Spectre sessions, a group of players that would later become known as the Wrecking Crew. He also hired the Sid Sharp Strings, LA's most in-demand orchestra. Brian had no formal music training, so he would bring in rough chord charts and sing each studio musician's part to them while they took notes. The musicians were skeptical, sometimes even baffled about taking directions from a beach boy, but Brian quickly impressed them. Carol Kay was a bass player in the Wrecking Crew and had been working with Brian since 1964. Well, the first time I saw Brian, he was a very young man. But something was different, though, about him because I noticed that everybody respected him a lot. And so word got out among us studio musicians, because we talk about the people that we worked with. First of all, most of the rock and rollers are very nice that we worked for, but we always had to invent lines for them. But with Brian, no, he brought in his own music. See, I would write the music on paper, music paper. And I go in and I say, here's your paper, here's your paper, here's your paper, here's your paper. And they all read the notes on the paper together. Back then, music was recorded in real time with musicians in a room together. And Brian somehow knew exactly the sounds he wanted to hear, even when that included combinations of instruments no one had ever heard before, like horns and banjo and timpani, bass harmonicas, and even sleigh bells. In studio tapes from that time, Brian is clearly in charge moving between the different musicians, singing instrumental hooks in their ears, pounding out rhythms on the table. It's starting to lose it, really. It really is. It's uh, the do-do-do-do. That whole thing didn't make it that time. It's got to be that happy shuffle thing, you know. Brian's first wife, Marilyn, later said that working on Pet Sounds consumed him. When inspiration struck, he'd call engineer Chuck Britz late at night, asking him to put together impromptu sessions. When Brian couldn't find a sound he was looking for, he'd make one up. Like when he wanted a childlike feeling on You Still Believe in Me, he plucked the piano strings with a bobby pin and added a bicycle horn to the outro. Carol Kay was in the room for those moments. He was learning as he was going, too. You know, he, he was trying this sound and that sound, and he had the, had the freedom to, to do that, and we understood that. Brian described the sessions as having a spiritual quality. He once said, quote, During the production of Pet Sounds, I dreamt I had a halo over my head. This might have meant that the angels were watching over Pet Sounds. That religious quality is most obvious on God Only Knows, a ballad that Paul McCartney once called the greatest song of all time. God only knows what I Brian said he wrote that song after smoking weed and listening to the Beatles. God Only Knows took me and Tony about an hour to write. It came very fast. It came just like that. And he and I were both astonished with it. We, we said, we have a classic song on our hands here. And here's Wrecking Crew keyboardist Don Randy. Let me tell you something about God Only Knows. We didn't know the title of that. 
So when we were playing it, you knew it was kind of a very special song, just the way it's chorded from nothing else. I mean, you're saying, oh my God, this is absolutely beautiful. And then when you hear the lyric, oh my God, I mean, it was priceless. Just wonderful. After returning from their month-long tour of Japan and Hawaii in early 1966, the Beach Boys showed up jet-lagged to Western Studios to hear the instrumental tracks Brian had been working on. Brian later summed up their reaction in four words. They didn't like it. When they showed up, most of the tracks were finished and Brian needed the guys to lay down vocals. Original member Al Jardine, who'd been a neighbor of the Wilsons growing up, remembers laboring over the harmonies for Wouldn't It Be Nice. Every day we'd come in and do them over and over and over again, like clockwork, or literally every day of the week. For like, it felt like six months. Brian swears it's only three months, <laughs> but it felt like six months. We would do something and we said, that was great. He says, no, do it again. Beach Boys co-founder and Brian's cousin, Mike Love. That's when I called Brian dog ears because he could hear things that most humans couldn't. We worked our buns off on, on making those background harmonies perfect. Sometimes the group didn't know where Brian was headed. Take the song, I Just Wasn't Made For These Times, in which Brian actually writes about how misunderstood he felt. As he sings in the song, no one wants to help me look for places where new things might be found. Bruce Johnston, who had just joined the Beach Boys a year earlier, remembers recording that song. Here he is talking to Rolling Stone's Patrick Doyle. We sang the chorus in Spanish. Listen to it closely. Why did you do it in Spanish? What was the thinking there? I don't know. Brian was the boss. I just moved my lips. Brian made a lot of surprising decisions. When it came time to record God Only Knows, he gave the lead vocal to his nervous 19-year-old brother Carl because Brian thought the song fit his brother's, quote, beautiful spirit. Brian was right. The song ended up as one of the greatest vocal performances of all time. If you should ever leave me, will life still go on, believe me? Again, Bruce Johnston who remembers working endlessly to get the track right. We tried it everywhere. We used all the voices, plus Brian's wife, Brian's sister, Terry Meltzer. We had all these voices. And then Brian, like any good guy who, you know, makes clay pottery, just took it all the way back down to the flat clay. And then we started over and Carl stepped up and sang that. And I still haven't gotten over how great his vocal was. Some of the songs made the group uncomfortable. Mike Love took issue with Tony Asher's lyrics for Hang On To Your Ego about the negative effects of LSD. He called it a doper song. That is true. There's a lot of ego destruction going on through LSD. And so I thought it's a little Timothy Leary for me. Yeah, Mike didn't like the lyrics. Again, that's Al Jardine. Jardine and Love remember when the song was renamed. He thought ego was a little too pretentious. So I think that may be a hang-up, was a hang-up for all of us. Actually, I shouldn't put it on Mike. But we weren't sophisticated enough at the time to think in those terms. And so Mike jumped in and kind of updated it. I suggested, what about, I know there's an answer, which is a little more generic and positive, positive thinking, that's me. And so that's what ended up on the album, although there is the original lyrics that are available too. But now, looking back on it, I wish we had left it the way it was, because I kind of enjoy that version myself. It was a lot of heady stuff going on, and lyrically and musically. 
Love's alleged harsh reaction to Pet Sounds has become part of the album's mythology. I mean, there's been disparaging things about me, about what I said about the album and all that. It was total horseshit because I was completely supportive. First of all, I named the album Pet Sounds because he didn't know what to call it. And it was unique. It was different than I Get Around or Fun, Fun, Fun or California Girls, true. But it was a great departure. I mean, when you listen to God Only Knows and Wouldn't It Be Nice and Sloop John B, we still do those songs in concert every night that we're, we're on stage. Still, Love says there are some things he wishes Brian had done differently, especially when it came to the lyrics. Yeah, it's case-by-case basis. Like, for instance, in God Only Knows, I May Not Always Love You, it's, it's played at so many weddings. I would have said, I know I'll always love you. It's just a couple things that I would have done differently. But I'm happy with it. I think it was great. The band completed Pet Sounds in April 1966, but their label, Capitol Records, was not enthusiastic. I remember Carl Ingeman, the A&R guy at Capitol, saying, hey, this is great, guys, but couldn't you do something more like, you know, California Girls or something like that? And then they played it for their marketing team at Capitol, and they didn't hear a lot of hits. So... It's sad because I don't think they knew how to treat it, even though people loved it. In fact, the Beatles, I mean, Bruce has that story of taking the acetate of Pet Sounds and playing it for John and Paul over in London. I played it for him. You know, the album's only, you know, about 30 minutes long. So they played it twice and they were just pretty silent. And they went and wrote here, there and everywhere with the influence of Wouldn't It Be Nice and our vocals for the Revolver album. And then Capitol Records did this. Again, Al Jardine. They put out Best of the Beach Boys about two months later, or or three months later, maybe. Yeah, and it completely drowned it out. They already had the first Best of the Beach Boys ready to go. That's how into Pet Sounds they were. They put a Best of album out. Hey, good work, you guys. The Best of record featured older Beach Boys songs like Catch a Wave and Little Honda, and no songs from their new record Pet Sounds which also received barely any promotion. And so Pet Sounds became the first Beach Boys album that failed to go gold since 1963. Even so, Brian forged ahead, producing the monumental Good Vibration single and working around the clock on what he envisioned as his masterwork, Smile. But the lack of support from his label, as well as his own increasing struggles with mental illness, slowed Brian down. And eventually, he pulled the plug on Smile in May 1967. And then we began to abandon the studio process and began to record it at Brian's house, as a matter of fact. And as a result of that, came up with some pretty good material. By the late 60s, the Beach Boys were painfully unhip. As the Beatles pushed forward, grew beards, made great new albums like The White Album and Abbey Road, the Beach Boys, minus Brian, were still touring the world wearing striped shirts and playing vintage surf hits. Despite some truly excellent, adventurous music through the late 60s and 70s, including Sunflower, Surf's Up, Holland, and the Beach Boys Love You. The times had passed the Beach Boys by. In the 1990s, with the help of his second wife, Melinda, Brian finally found the emotional stability and creative outlet to return to a thriving solo career. He put together his first solo band and started to play live again. He found himself returning to the music of classic albums like Pet Sounds that he'd made so long ago. And as it turned out, the world was finally ready. Here's Probe and Gregory who's been in Brian's band for more than two decades. He was so sophisticated harmonically that I think that it took a more sophisticated harmonic, not palette, but harmonic uh, 
development of a lot of listeners to be able to get into that music. And I think that did happen over time. And so Pet Sounds was slowly rose through the ranks. When he started playing live again, some of the material Brian wanted to play had actually never been performed before. Here's Paul Mertens, Brian's longtime musical director and saxophonist. I remember the first time we ran through Don't Talk, Lay Your Head on My Shoulder. We went through it and everybody was like, oh, that's such an amazing song. And Brian said, I haven't sung that since we recorded it. And we were, everybody was kind of floored by that. Again, Proven Gregory. And that actually, for a while at least, was the song that would I occasionally, during the performance of that song, I would be crying on stage while I was playing it because it's so intense and beautiful. I think that Brian had not revisited a lot of that material since the time. Now, I'm not sure if that was because it was emotionally painful for him or what things were at work, I don't know. I spent a lot of time with Brian on his Pet Sounds tours. He still battles his illness bravely, and though he loves being on the road and performing, it's hard for him. Backstage before one of his shows, he told me that as much as he loves this music, and as much joy as he sees it bring to audiences, performing Pet Sounds forces him all these years later to face his own fears and vulnerabilities as a young man. I've seen him many nights after singing the last melancholy chorus of the final song, Caroline No, bolt from the stage and leave his band to finish the instrumental part without him. Brian turned 77 on the final Pet Sounds tour in 2019, and he made no effort to hide his frailties from the audience. Instead, he gave each concert everything he had, performing with a dignity and courage that was incredible to watch. Here's Proven Gregory. I think that the, the listeners are quite aware that we are hearing a man in his older age, nearing the end of his career, singing songs that were done near the beginning of his career, and that there is, per se, a difference in emotional weight behind there. And also, Brian has, has suffered. He has had to deal with a lot has a lot of demons that he's been fighting for a long time. And sometimes I hear that in his voice. It pops out on different songs on different nights. Um, and I think the audience is aware of that too. A lot of the audience have been, they know him. They've been following him. They're way aware it has not been easy for him to get to where he is now and to have finished Smile, which I still think is a great personal achievement for him to have done that and finally sort of essentially gotten it out of his system. I remember one night a couple of years ago, backstage before a hometown show at the Pantages Theater in L.A., I asked Brian how it made him feel that after all these years, the music he'd made when he was 24 years old was still making people happy, still giving them a feeling of hope and solace, an almost spiritual experience. He told me that after all these years, he started to feel the love in return. He said, I want to believe my music helps people with their troubles, eases their minds, makes them feel love. But in the end, how can I know? After the break, Jason and I will be joined by Cameron Crow and Linda Perry to talk about our Beach Boys fandom and what makes Pet Sound so powerful. We'll be right back.
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm the editor of Rolling Stone, and I am thrilled to be here with these guys to talk about pet sounds. My name is Linda Perry, and I can ditto what Jason just said. Cameron Crowe, writer, director, journalist, uh, Rolling Stone, contributing editor, and so proud of it. And, uh, you know, part of the home team here talking about Brian and the Beach Boys. Cameron, Pet Sounds ranked number one on your ballot for the 2003 list, and in the same issue where the original list was published, you told a great story about your experiences listening to this album as a teenager. What made you fall in love with Pet Sounds? Pet Sounds, for me, was one of those albums where I felt the artist was speaking my most personal thoughts, and I felt validated. And that was a surprise for me coming out of the Beach Boys, who'd been like my sister's pop band favorite, you know? But here suddenly was a guy who was talking about that happy, sad feeling that I was just holding so close, but it, it was so beautifully expressed. And and I love that over time, like in the Rolling Stone list, the top three albums are all three kind of in that same class of like super personal songwriting that just lasts and lasts and lasts. And it's it's the voice inside of you. It's the most personal voice. And all three of those albums are song cycles that just embrace that. And Pet Sounds is the towering one for me. I didn't even know this album existed when I was growing up. Um, the album that I first got when I checked it out of the Laguna Beach Public Library was Endless Summer because I liked all the beards and it just looked weird. And <laughs> that album, you know not mistakenly cut out all this. There were no songs from Pet Sounds on that Greatest Hits album because a lot of the members of the group didn't even like it themselves. So the the Beach Boys that I knew was, was a lot of the hits that Cameron was talking about, but there were also things in there that gave that feeling of, wow, there's, there is something deep and melancholy and personal in here, you know, warmth of the sun in my room, which just, as a kid who spent a lot of time in his room, it just destroyed me. And so you knew there was like this surfing thing, but there was also this sadness, this depth, and it felt, you know, very honest yeah. to me. And, and you know, I discovered Pet Sounds years and years later, and it would have been way too much for me as a kid. That line, where, where can I turn when my fair weather friends cop out, Oof. to me was just devastating as a kid. I always found it interesting. I don't know why I picked up on this early and then now it even makes more sense now. But I always felt like the love songs weren't really real. Like it was like he was trying to imagine what being in love would feel like. And that 
sounded like his perspective. It wasn't from someone who actually could feel love or give love. It was more of like, I wonder if this is what it would sound like. Even now when I listen to, you know, you know, wouldn't it be nice? It's like, I don't think it has anything to do with love. It's more, wouldn't it be nice if I could actually feel this, you know, of the things that I'm talking about. And then on that album, you know, sort of by the end of the album, he's sort of lost that it it sort of isn't going to materialize in the way yeah. that he'd imagined just at the start of the album. <laughs> Dennis was the ladies' man. Brian was the the wallflower, right? Totally. Linda, what were some of your early experiences? I, I saw in some interviews you mentioned how your sister was a, a huge Beach Boys fan, and that was formative for you as well. So my sister loved Beach Boys and Elvis Presley. My brothers loved the Beatles and you know anything rock and. I gravitated towards Karen Carpenter. For some reason, there was something about her voice. So now this is before I heard Brian Wilson's voice in the Beach Boys. You know, I locked on to her voice like from on TV because I saw this show and I'm looking for the singer. I see her brother and I see somebody at the drums, but I can't make it out, but I can't find the singer. And then all of a sudden they start closing in and it's like, oh my God, the drummer is the singer. And that blew my mind. You know, I don't know how old I was. I was very young. But her voice was so sad to me. Like, I I just emotionally connected because it was, to me, someone who's very broken and very sad, but singing about these birds and rainy days and, you know, all this, like, you know, mushy, cheesy stuff. So then one day I'm passing my sister's room and she's playing the Beach Boys. And I heard those harmonies and that yearn. It sounded like a morning cry. It sounded like someone was, you know, in pain and just expressing this instrument. And I locked in and I'm like, who's this? And I start looking at the cover and I, I don't, I think it was, I can't remember what album is, but with all of them with the surfboards, is that Surfing USA or? Surfer Girl. Surfer Girl, yes. And that was the song, Surfer Girl, thank you. And it was a little surf. I mean, it was, it was like, you know, the melody just grabbed me right away. And that's how I was introduced. And I, it was very haunting. And I was a very depressed, sad child, a lot of darkness in my life. And I just heard those melodies and the harmonies and that voice. And I instantly was sold. Since you all are are from Southern California, can we try to embody or describe how the Beach Boys have come to define that sound and just what that meant for their music in the early 60s. For me, I'm I was raised in San Diego and you know my brothers were surfing, we were always at the beach and to this day no one has stepped into those shoes. What they did was brought the beach to your ears. If you closed your eyes, you could probably hear the waves. It it just had the way the voices carried together. It was very you know, beautiful harmony and the way the vocals were recorded and the way they sounded, it was like nothing you could ever hear. Even when you're like dealing with the, you know, Beach Blake and Bingo and all those movies and the surf, you know, Dick Dale and all those guys, Beach Boys were on a whole other level. They brought the sand and the beach to the speakers and that no one has ever done still to this day. Growing up in Southern California, you know, in the early part of the Beach Boys career, they established such a beachy, 
cool culture that it spread to like the the radio stations like uh the boss jocks at khj which was like a big la station which we would get in san diego and we also we also had a boss station in san diego but like the djs were like beach boys they would drive around in a big woody with the shirts all the same they'd arrive at like radio events and come out together and it was all kind of based on that beach boys album cover ethic and everything got real surfy and crazy and there was a dance party show that came to our town and it was all from that first early blast of beach boys and the amazing thing is like most bands would have plateaued there i mean they had like a ton of hits they'd established culture everything was fine an ambitious manager would say stay right there for as long as you can stay there but that's where brian starts to ascend and that's that's where everybody gets very uncomfortable because he's messing with that format that had already been like completely pervasive in California. So it was he was turning his back on the golden formula in a way and bringing everybody up with him. And that was an amazing thing to to kind of experience as a California guy. The ascension of the Beach Boys as artistic icons. Yeah, I was shocked to learn that Brian Wilson was only 24 when this album was released. This was Amazing. their 11th studio album. It's something I just never had thought about before when I had listened to this. And Jason, I wonder if you can sort of set us up to the recording period of Pet Sounds. And I know that especially with demands, Brian had quit touring right before this. Like, where was he at and how was he coping with the pop stardom in the years leading up to Pet Sounds? He was mentally ill. Um, he was dealing with some really serious emotional issues that were sort of undiagnosed and that people didn't really talk about in sort of the place that he came from. Um, but he was also full of creative energy. Um, and he was also fending off his band, his label, everyone, because he had this vision. He had this thing. You know, I was watching the Queen's Gambit the other night and those scenes where she's like lying in her bed, looking up at the chess board playing chess in her mind on the ceiling and making these moves. That's what Brian was doing. He was imagining these vast constructions of musical wow. instruments and textures in his mind. And he would know that, oh, well, I got to call, you know, two oboe players and I got to get a guy from the Philharmonic to play timpani and I need some sleigh bells, you know, tomorrow. And somehow he knew what that was going to sound like, even though those instruments had never even been played together before. So there was a lot happening um, in Brian's world. And I think when he left touring in, in 64 <clears throat> to focus on the studio, that's where it all came out. That's where he, like, like Cameron said, as ascended to another level. And it was very hard to sustain that, both, I think, with his own emotional issues, but also with the cross currents of, you know, I mean, I think George Martin himself said this, like the Beatles had each other. And they also had George Martin. Brian only really had himself. Does Brian love Pet Sounds? Well, that's a really good question. I think Brian is proud of Pet Sounds. I think Brian understands that it gives people joy and solace. And I think yeah. that makes him happy. I think it's a really hard... It's not the music he would go listen to. I think it's really hard to, to listen. One time we were talking... I could tell he was dragging. He didn't really want to perform it. Like he went on tour with Pet Sounds and he was kind of rushing through that part. It's a short album, but he would kind of rush through it. And, and every night I noticed that halfway through Caroline No, which is the last song, 
he'd be off the stage already. He could not wait to get done with it. And I asked him about it and he said, it's, it's really hard as an old man to look back on sort of what you thought life might be like as a young man. It's just sort of too much. So I think it's, I think it's hard for him, but I, I, he's definitely proud of it. When you talk to him about music and, and, you know, we talked about Brian's relationship with Pet Sounds today, but is there something that he's done that to him is like Pet Sounds, like something that he's done that affected him the way Pet Sounds affects us? in his canon? Like, does he say 15 big ones is really my finest work? He loves the Beach Boys Love You. Right. That's his album. He loves how weird it is and how cool. It's kind of almost a Brian Wilson solo record, I guess. And right. um, he loves that. He loves listening to songs like Johnny Carson and Mona and stuff like that. And he, he loves the songs. There, there's a kind of certain kind of song that has this perseverance in it, like, going on or like i can't remember the name of it but songs that have this kind of thing of like it's almost like his dad talking to him you know you do wow. better be better keep going and he he really he really likes that you know one of the songs that he he wrote this song with his dad called breakaway which he told me was written his dad came up with the title because they were watching tv together and the announcer said, we're going to break away from a commercial and we'll be right back. And his dad's like, we got to write a song called Breakaway. And he loves those moments of kind of spontaneous creation. And he remembers those. Like Warmth of the Sun was one like that, where they just wrote it one night. And he has this thing. I think so many things for Brian never got finished or never got completed or got lost somewhere along the way. And when you have something and you have an idea and you execute it and you get it done and it's good. Like he feels, he, he loves that. You know, I think a lot of it ha really has to do with his brothers hearing, hearing Carl and Dennis as they, especially on those records in the, into the seventies where Brian sort of receded a little bit and Carl and Dennis stepped forward, both as producers and as singers and writers. And I think he's, he's really proud of his brothers. To your point, Linda, about reinvention, for many, this is seen as one of the first concept albums ever created. And Brian himself described it once as a production concept album. Can you explain what that means as a producer and how the way this album sounds elevates it above the other Beach Boys albums? Well, I think, you know, Jason said it, you know, where, you know, I'm going to take some oboes, I'm going to put it together with timpani or whatever. I think the ex he experimented. So if you listen to the record, there's definitely a very unique sounding reverbs that are happening. You know, it's not like he's doing his uh, Phil Spector wall of sound, but he is. But it's different because it God only knows. That is one of the most brilliant productions I've ever heard because it does all these untypical things. Like the bass starts, but then all of a sudden... It's in high notes, plucking, you know, and then the bass shows up and then there's drums and then that's it. Just a tambourine. There's, you know, cups doing a, you know, a Western gallop, whatever you want to call that sound. And it's super interesting because still to this day, I can listen to it and find something else new that I didn't hear before. And that makes an incredible producer, an incredible production, and someone who's incredibly 
inventive and creative that's really thinking again outside the box. I think that's what is awesome about Brian Wilson is he really did go out into this other area and experimenting. And experimenting is exactly what we need to do right now. Please, Jesus, Lord, tiny baby, bald Jesus. You know, I would love to say that to the world right now. It is time, people, to really experiment with music because everybody just keeps falling. I don't want to lose my followers. When you don't want to fucking lose something, you're fucked. When you operate on fear, you're fucked. And I think the fear that Brian Wilson had was to be irrelevant and within himself, you know? I mean, again, I don't know, but it's like, I don't think there was fear of losing. I think it was more like not doing, fear of not saying I did this or I tried or I experimented. I think he wanted to win, but I'm not sure exactly what he knew what the prize was. As ambitious as the arrangements and productions are, the lyrics are as relatable and catchy as anything else Brian Wilson has written. Cameron, you describe the songs as secret cries for help disguised in Baroque and candy-coated harmonies, the sound of Brian Wilson's universe coming together and falling apart. What feelings and heartbreaks was Brian unpacking on this album? Wow, I think um, I think what he expresses is, is what so many of us, particularly when you're around the age that Brian was when he made the record, you're feeling all these things and you're having heartbreak and you're feeling deliverance from the music that you love or the books that you love or movies or whatever. But then every once in a while, something cuts through and it feels like it's written just for you. And that sounds for me when I first heard it, I didn't get it. And, and that's a badge of honor really, because a lot of the best stuff doesn't land directly on a sweet spot the first time you experience it. Hissing of Summer Lawns, the Joni Mitchell album, yet another record that kind of takes time to unfold. What's going on was, you know, rejected when Marvin Gaye first turned it in. Pet Sounds, I think Jason knows more about this than me, but I'm assuming like Capitol Records didn't do jumping jacks when they first heard Pet Sounds. But for me, it, it was the sound of Brian's inner, deeply personal inner struggles surrounded with the sound of heaven. And when that lands, you never forget it. And it took me a few listens. And now, of course, it's my favorite. What did you learn the most about songwriting from listening to Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys? Well, I'm going to say this, and please, I understand if I get knocked on this. Some of the Beach Boys songs weren't the greatest, but what made them great were the harmonies and melodies. You know, like there was some there there's some stuff going on on pet sounds where mm, it's not my favorite song you know like whatever but what's interesting again it's the risk taking it's the the emotion so i've always been drawn to emotion not arrangement and not um not even really words to me why my ears perked up when I first heard the Beach Boys was because I was struck by an emotion, not a word, not really a sound. It was more something, a combination of it all that, you know, I got from Karen Carpenter. It's like there's something sad and melancholy and desperate and a cry for help. And I don't know what it is, but that's that. So when I pick up the guitar or you know i'm just like mm, 
just making this up right now because I'm feeling sad. You know what I mean? It's just like you just go into this place and who cares what the words are? It's just if you can impact my heart, that's all I care about when it comes to songwriting. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned earlier, this album was a huge risk and a huge change and a major pivot from even what the rest of the band wanted to do. Can you explain a little bit about what people weren't getting about Pet Sounds at the time? Well, I mean, there were no hits, you know, it wasn't a singles record. Um, You know, they put on Sloop John B to try and give it that, but that's not what he was doing. Um, You know, he was trying to make a record better than Rubber Soul. I mean, that's exactly what he wanted to do. And he also, as Linda was saying, he had some deep, deep need in him to, to, to express this part of himself. Um, So yeah, I don't think it's really a surprise that it wasn't a hit because I think it confused a lot of people who wanted another surf song or a song about cars. In that sense, parts of his band were right and his label was right. But um, obviously the record was much bigger than any hit single could be. But it took a long time, I think, for people to really catch up to it. I mean, musicians did at the time, you know, um, when the Beatles heard it, they said, holy shit, we better go do Revolver and Sgt. Peppers. You know, I mean, it was like it was like this sort of arms race at the time. And there was this aspect of obviously emotion and risk taking, but there was also an aspect of competition, trying to do better. Brian told me once, sort of after Pet Sounds and before he did Smile, he was driving down the street in LA and Strawberry Fields Forever came on the radio, which came out before Sgt. Peppers. And he said he just pulled over and cried because he said, well, Mm. they did it. You know, what am I going to do now? And that there was definitely very much that that inspiration and and competition that 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 drove those guys at that time. Given that type of competition that you mentioned, is that how we sort of see that shift in the 60s where rock beans more singles driven that time kind of moved into a more album driven genre or how did Pet Sounds kind of change that perspective for the industry? Well, I I mean, Linda probably knows better than me, but I would say that both what the Beatles were doing and what the Beach Boys were doing, that sort of arms race of making complete artistic statements inspire, and, you know, Dylan too, were inspiring um, musicians that, wow, we can do this, that it's not, we're not just writing a three minute song for the radio. We're making a big, you know, painting. We're making a big statement. Um, And that certainly changed rock and roll forever. This was also the era where people were beginning to look at Brian as a genius, like Bob Dylan, like the Beatles. Jason, what kind of pressure did that put on both Brian and the band after that happened? Well, the idea that Brian was a genius actually came from the Beatles publicist, Derek Taylor. After the Pet Sounds record didn't do very well, they were trying to figure out like, how do we get this attention? Not really in a commercial way, but in a way so that people could hear the majesty of this music. And Derek Taylor came up with the idea that this is a genius. Um, this is the work of genius. He was absolutely right about that. But everybody before that saw the Beach Boys as this group of brothers and cousins, family band, you know, kind of like a boy band. And then all of a sudden there's this, this one of them <laughs> who's different than the rest. I think Caroline No actually, when it first came out, was credited to Brian Wilson and not to the Beach Boys. And, you know, Brian wasn't on tour anymore. And so there was, you know, there was kind of a growing 
schism in the group. Also, the Beach Boys by then were not hip, you know. I mean, the Beatles evolved. The Beach Boys didn't evolve. You know, most of them were still wearing the striped shirts and, you know, driving the sports cars and, and all that stuff. And Brian was trying to evolve. Brian was trying to be a true evolving artist. So I think that schism kind of grew. And, you know, I mean, some of the most touching things to me are, are sort of what came later when the Beach Boys tried to be a group again. And they tried to, you know, show that that family harmony on albums like Sunflower and Friends and Holland. But it was always tricky for them. And there, there always was that schism, I think, where Brian sort of became the creator and the rest of the guys were behind him in that. Well, I think, too, when you're operating at that type of frequency, it's impossible. It really is impossible to, to carry everybody with you because... Even if you can be supportive, let's say Brian Wilson was like, hey, you guys, let's all write a song and let's be the best band ever. They're never, ever going to be at his frequency. So when you are operating high like that, it's very distracting and it's very frustrating to constantly be looking back, right? you know, and to pull people. And then it gets to a point where it's like, you know what, I'm going to get more done on my own because I know exactly what I want. And those, again, as a leader or as that type of creative, those, again, are the risks that you have to take, that everything falls on Brian Wilson. If it goes shit, it's going to be Brian Wilson's fault. You know, yeah. if it goes great, it's the Beach Boys, you know? So, That's right. You know, so it's a very difficult line to walk. So at some point, you just got to go. You just got to go. One of the most touching things that sort of relates to that is, is you know, we talked a little bit about God Only Knows. And I mean, one of Brian's probably greatest songs ever. And yet on the record, he let his brother sing it. Brian's voice was ready for that song. And Brian sang the leads on that album, but he let his younger brother sing it. He brought his younger brother up that way. And I always, I mean, you know, Carl has this angelic voice. But what a brave sort of big thing to do to give that opportunity to Carl, who hadn't really sung much in the way of leads before. That was always very touching to me. Jason, do you feel like Brian has found freedom for himself? I know that there was the album Smile after Pet Sounds that was shelved for a long time, and he has gotten back to touring, and this album itself has grown in popularity and has become as celebrated as, as it is today. But do you think he's found that same sort of freedom and creativity now? I mean, a lot of people, you know, talk, ask about Brian or, or, or write about Brian, and he's always sort of framed as, as someone who's, you know, been through some heavy shit and not recovered and has suffered a lot of mental illness and has never, because yeah, he can be awkward on stage. He can hear voices in his head, but I see it as absolute courage and commitment because how hard is it you know for anyone to do what he does let alone someone who's also struggling with such serious emotional issues so i see it as this amazing positive thing i mean the pet sounds that music was never played live before until he started playing it live now smile there's a when he finished his sort of long lost you know masterpiece smile finally in 2004 and 
he toured, there's videos I was watching and there's one where he premieres it at Royal Albert Hall in London. And about halfway through, you see his visage change. You see him look up and actually smile. And his face just, the worry just melts off of it. And so I feel like Mm -hmm. that's what it has given him. And I think connecting that music with an actual people in the audience from, you know, who are in tears, who are having experiences, he's, he has definitely noticed and recognized that this music has given people what he always wanted to give people, which was a kind of comfort, a kind of solace, a kind of peace that he never had himself. What are the songs that you can't help but return to just some of the favorite moments that kind of really stick with you from this album? Wouldn't It Be Nice is is probably, and Caroline, no, and of course, God Only Knows. Those three, to me, are, are, are the standouts for me. Yeah, God Only Knows for me, too. I mean, I was going to say, I sort of can't even separate the songs often. They just blend together with the instrumentals and stuff in between them. So I just hear, like, sometimes it'll come on shuffle, and I'm just like, no, 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 like, you can't listen to that record on shuffle. Mm-hmm. But God Only Knows to me is is, you know, just maybe one of the greatest songs Ever. Yeah, I just wasn't made for these times, and um, that's not me. Don't talk, put your head on my shoulder. You know, the instrumental that, like, Neil Young put in Journey Through the Past, what seeped in were the was the personal stuff, you know. Um, they say I got brains, but it ain't doing me no good. It's just like, can you write it any better and more conversationally? You know who else is really good at conversational lyrics? I mean, Brian is the godfather of that, but Tom Petty. Tom Petty is so good at just sounding conversational and thrown away, and uh, he'll contradict himself and comment on himself in a song. And Brian Brian is the same way. And I I start to feel about Pet Sounds that he was smuggling out stuff that was potentially embarrassing, but it wasn't embarrassing to me. It, It was courageous. And... You know, like like I was saying earlier, it opened up for me a love that I still have to this minute of personal songwriting. It's my favorite. When somebody goes to that embarrassingly personal place, it's usually the stuff that they're going to be remembered for. You can't bullshit. It's too true to be bullshit. So close your eyes, send it in, record it, whatever. And more often than not, that's going to be the thing that people find to be universal because everybody's embarrassed and everybody feels like, where could I turn when my fairweather friends cop out? It's like, that's the shit that really digs deep. So I don't know. That's all mixed up with my love of the Beach Boys and finding a journalistic voice and everything. And that that's why ending Almost Famous with Feel Flows felt like the completion of a circle in a way. Beach Boys Pet Sounds ranks number two on Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums of All Time, which can be found on our website, rollingstone.com, and in the magazine's October issue. I'm Brittany Spanos. This is Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Albums. Executive producers are Christian Horde, Nathan Brackett, and Gus Winner. 
This episode was produced by Jason Fine, Patrick Doyle, Andy Green, Emrys Eller, and me. Mixed by Michelle Lands. Our senior producer is Jasmine Morris. Megan McBride is our production manager. Bridget Chelsea is our production assistant. Fact-checking by Jonathan Bernstein. Supervising executives for Amazon Music are Raymond Roker and Morgan Jones. And for Rolling Stone, Jason Fine. Special thanks to John Anderson. You can find this podcast exclusively on Amazon Music, on the web, the mobile app, or on any Echo device. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast, American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.